Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Melbourne, Australia to discuss open lung ventilation in ARDS. Good day. We'd like to welcome you to the ATS Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. Today, we're very fortunate uh, to have Drs. Hodgson and Nicole. Uh, from ANZIC, and uh, they'll be discussing their recent article published in the Blue Journal entitled Maximal Recruitment Open Lung Ventilation in ARDS. Um, welcome to the podcast, um, uh, Dr. Hodgson and Dr. Nicol. Um, could you please introduce yourself? Thanks very much, Dominique. It's, we're delighted to be here. My name's Carol Hodgson. I'm the co-chair of the FILAP study, and I work at the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Centre in Melbourne, Australia. Hi, my name is Alistair Nicholl, and I've had the pleasure of being the chair of the FARAP trial with Carol. Um, I'm an intensivist in Ireland and in Australia, and I work in Antigarcy with Carol in Monash University, but also for University College Dublin in St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin. So that has symbolised the way we've actually been able to do the international collaboration in this study and bring teams together. So I'm delighted to talk to you today. Great, an absolute pleasure to have both of you, Carol and Alistair. So we can go ahead and get started. So I'll start with Carol. Um, maybe you could give us a bit of background as to why you performed the study and what it entailed? Yeah, absolutely. So the FARLAP study is actually a complex intervention which involves several components. Uh, when I first met Alistair a very long time ago, he was um, had just completed his PhD in permissive hypercapnia and the potentially beneficial effects of permissive hypercapnia. So that was the PH in FARLAP. Uh, I was doing my uh, PhD looking at recruitment manoeuvres and whether there was a positive or negative effect on recruitment manoeuvres during ARDS. So that's the alveolar recruitment part of the FARLAP. And uh, we were both interested in uh, protective lung ventilation. So that's the low airway pressure, the last part of FILAP. At that time, I think that it was quite common, uh, certainly across Australia, to be using some form of recruitment manoeuvres. We had all just been participating in the LOVE study. So um, a 40 for 40 recruitment manoeuvre was very common. And I think that we generally agreed that allowing the lungs to rest a little and allow permissive hypercapnia was potentially beneficial. So we were putting together a, um, a ventilation strategy, an open lung ventilation strategy that we felt may be beneficial when targeted in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. And of course, this was immediately after the H1N1 flu pandemic in Australia, where we had used a lot of open lung strategies and fairly uh, maximal recruitment manoeuvres to rescue patients. And in fact, we had an Australian protocol that was circulated throughout all the intensive care units in Australia about how to perform our staircase recruitment manoeuvre. So people in Australia and New Zealand were already conducting this sort of recruitment manoeuvre. We knew it was already being uh, performed across Brazil. And there were many people who actually felt very strongly that this was a rescue therapy that should be used in advance of other rescue therapies because it was uh, essentially uh, driven by the consultant using just a ventilator without any other need for equipment uh, or expensive interventions. 
And before we started our phase two study, which is the one that's published in the Blue Journal, we had completed a safety study, a Cochrane systematic review and a pilot study, which had all shown that it was safe and that there was potentially beneficial effects from uh, reduced biomarkers and improved driving pressures. Uh, and we were able to titrate peak this way. So we, we felt that we were using a strategy that was potentially beneficial. Great. So, Alistair, maybe you could explain for uh, the younger members of our ATS community, what is an open lung strategy and what would be the proposed mechanism of benefits of using this strategy? Yeah, yeah. So, maybe, um, so our trial is called the FARAP trial. And uh, for those of you who are not aware, so FARAP actually was a well-known Australian New Zealand racehorse from the era of the Great Depression and um, unfortunately ended up on a tour of uh, North America and was allegedly poisoned by the Mafia. So it didn't end too well for the namesake of our trial. But those letters really um, hold together what we think are the critical elements of the open lung strategy and some of the refinements we did. So the, the first part would be the alveolar recruitment or the AR of our trial. And the idea is that you use higher airway pressures to open up the alveoli that have collapsed during cyclical mechanical ventilation. And there's an increasing understanding that higher pressures are needed to open more and more of the lung. And what our trial used was maximum lung recruitment levers. So previous trials had looked at 40 and 40, uh, which means like 40 centimeters of water for about 40 seconds, static recruitment levers. But we used a maximum recruitment maneuver which increased the PEEP up to 40 centimetres of water with an additional 15 centimetres of water tidal volume ventilation on top of that. So higher than normal pressures and pressures that would sometimes cause some concern in the ICU if they were seen. But they're used for a short period of time, so an hour study up to six minutes. And there's an increasing amount of background work that shows that these manoeuvres, because they're dynamic, uh, the patients can tolerate the increment in PEEP as it goes up and they don't seem to suffer high rates of hypotension and um, desaturation. So you can actually open up significant amounts of the lung. And so that is, that is seen to be good in itself, but the real key is, is after you do this, you apply an adequate amount of pain. And we could maybe spend some time talking about how we did that, but a higher amount of pain keeps these lung segments open. And if you go back to the theory about the baby lung in ARDS, so there is a small portion of the lung in ARDS which is able to accept a tidal volume breath. And the smaller this is, the higher pressures and maybe the more injury it um, inflicts. So the whole idea of this strategy is actually for that fixed tidal volume breath, by applying a maximum recruitment mover with adequate amounts of peak, you actually have more of the alveoli open and more lung able to accept this tidal volume breath and actually maybe less body trauma, less bowel trauma, and lower pressures. And then there were one or two small tweaks in our intervention where we actually said, there's been an increasing amount of work that's showing that lower tidal volume seems to be more beneficial than ARDS. And by actually this baby lung approach where we're more alveoli open, but also with the tolerance of high levels of CO2, so permissive hypercapnia, we might be able to actually limit the tidal volumes more and actually limit the pressure and volume injury even more. And that's sort of the theory of the open lung approach and why it may be beneficial from a physiological point of view. 
Great. Well, and we'll definitely get into the details about the PEEP strategy later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, Carol, um, maybe you could just tell us how you performed your study and how it differed from prior studies on the same topic. Yeah, sure. Um, so we were conducting pilot work from 2006 to 2011, as I said, on this topic, where Alistair had been investigating the effects of permissive hypercapnia I'd been looking at this sort of maximal recruitment manoeuvre. And this was a real collaboration, I think, between um, some of the senior intensivists involved in this study. So Marcelo Amato is very good friends with our senior intensivist here in Australia, Professor David Tuxon. Um, I really want to acknowledge the role that these two had in leading our thoughts on this topic. Uh, they essentially spent a lot of time with us talking through the strategy, which they felt would be safe and effective. Um, it, we knew that from Marcelo Amato's work that we needed to try and reduce the driving pressure. And to do that, if we could set the PEEP at an optimal level and then really minimise the tidal volume so that it was an ultra low tidal volume, we felt that we might be able to protect the lungs better. So the, the maximal recruitment manoeuvre was really, as Alistair said, you know, used in a stepwise fashion to safely step up and then set, step down to titrate the PEEP to the patient's optimal levels based on an oxygen saturation target, which as you said, perhaps we'll talk about later. And then we could hold the lungs open with a very ultra low tidal volume and ultra low plateau pressure. So the way, the main way that we believed that our study would differ from other studies, including perhaps from the art study, which Marcelo was involved with uh, in Brazil, was that we really were trying to target ultra low tidal volumes and plateau pressures. So as low as, you know, four mils per kilo if possible, um, knowing that we would have to allow permissive hypercapnia for that to occur. And as I said, we had uh, published our safety study and our pilot study. Um, the pilot randomised controlled trial was a small pilot randomised controlled trial, but it did show a reduction in um, inflammatory biomarkers uh, during the, this strategy. And it also showed reduced driving pressure in the intervention group and it showed that we could improve oxygenation. Um, and so as far as we were concerned, it, it appeared to be a strategy that we could deliver safely and effectively in terms of reducing the amount of inflammation in patients with moderate to severe ARDS. Great. So for the benefit of our audience, um, maybe you could compare your intervention arm to the control arm so that they can understand um, uh, the, the differences between the two? Yeah, sure. So our, our control arm was actually standard care, which means that, you know, because this was a phase two study that was conducted in 35 intensive care units across five countries, you can imagine that standard care may differ a little from country to country. But essentially we were allowing patients to ventilate in the control arm in either a pressure control mode or a, vent, uh, or a volume control mode, but they were aiming for um, ongoing ventilation of six mils per kilo, uh, plateau pressures 30 or less, and no recruitment maneuvers was the aim. Uh, they could use other rescue therapies, but they were not meant to use any sort of recruitment maneuver to, to improve oxygenation in their patients. And then how would that compare to the control, oh, to the intervention arms? My understanding would be that they could have pressure control in the intervention arm. There could be pressure control, a tidal volume of 46 mils and a P flat of less than 28. Would that be correct? That, that's correct. So the intervention arm, definitely we started off by doing a maximum recruitment manoeuvre. 
That recruitment manoeuvre was conducted in pressure control. Uh, we titrated the PEEP up to open up the lungs as Alistair described. Then we titrated the PEEP down in steps to set the optimal PEEP based on an oxygenation response. Once we felt that we had the optimal PEEP level, then we um, then went on to conduct ultra low tidal volume ventilation using, as you said, uh, you know, tidal volumes of four to six mils per kilo plateau pressures aiming for about 28 centimetres of water, allowing permissive hypercapnia. And then there would be a daily recruitment manoeuvre for five days unless there was no improvement in their static lung compliance. So we checked their static lung compliance on the day that they were randomised and then two days later, if there was no improvement in their static lung compliance, we called these patients a non-responder and we didn't continue to do the recruitment manoeuvre. We just uh, titrated our PEEP um, down to the lowest level that was allowed in the intervention arm, which was 15, and then we used ultra-low tidal volume and ultra-low plateau pressures in those patients. And Perfect. I just one of the things there, so, so the startup intervention is, as Carol described, but I suppose one of the neat things we thought was at the very start of the maximal recruitment maneuver, we titrated the FiO2, so the peak was around 90%. So the whole idea was that the patient would be on the just on the hump of the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. So after going up and recruiting the lung, we would record the FPO2 on that FIO2 at that time. And as we reduced our PEEP, we waited to see desaturation. And we thought when the, the, the SAS dropped at that stage, we linked that to atelectasis due to reducing PEEP. And that's how we picked the individual PEEP for each patient in the product group each day. Can you just say that again for me, please, Alistair? From the start? Yes, please. Yeah, okay. So just to add to what Carol said about the FARAP intervention, um, we, we think what we have is a really neat way of titrating PEEP for each patient individually each day that they re received the intervention. And basically what we did, before we did the maximum recruitment maneuver, we titrated the FiO2 so that the patient's SATs were around 90%, so they were in the, the hump of the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. So small changes in oxygenation would be reflected as changes in uh, saturation. So after the recruitment maneuver, uh, the peak was returned to 25 centimeters of water. We recorded the saturation at that point. And then we, we uh, reduced the PEEP in two and a half centimeter increments by watching the clock like for reductions in the saturation. And when the saturations dropped, we linked this to atelectasis. So we thought we actually have increased shunt because we reduced the PEEP to a level that the AVOA had closed. And then we realized we'd gone a step too far. We did a brief recruitment maneuver and went up to the PEEP two and a half centimeters above. And we hoped that that would be a way that we could individually titrate the PEEP for each patient in the intervention group each day. And that's opposed to the ARGENET PEEP FIO2 table. And it differs to the ART trial because the ART trial uh, actually measured static lung mm. compliance at each PEEP decrement. So on each downward step of the, uh, of the um, PEEP titration manoeuvre, the ART investigators would actually measure lung compliance, which some people would argue is a much more accurate reflection of what's actually happening in the lungs. But we felt that it wasn't common for our 
intensivist to measure compliance like that at the bedside and that the oxygen saturation was a surrogate measure for this shunt, as Alistair said, and would be an easier and, and certainly uh, a quicker way for our intensivists to be able to detect that um, beginning of atelectasis so that they could then set the peep at the level above where that uh, decrement in SPO2 occurred. Great. I think uh, we've got a really good overview of the study now, Carol and Alistair. So let's go ahead and discuss your findings. So, Carol, what were your primary and secondary findings? Yeah. So I guess I need to state at the outset that this was a phase two study. So our primary outcome measure was ventilator-free days, and we had powered that on a sample size of 340 patients. So in the October that the ART study was published in 2017, you can imagine that um, for our study that was incredibly influential in whether our investigators had equipoise to continue to randomise into this intervention or not because the ART study investigators had found harm. Now there were significant differences in our opinion between the ART study and the FILAP study but we were both using these maximal recruitment manoeuvres which really um, had been linked to increased barotrauma and um, increased cardiac arrests in the first seven days. So you can imagine that our, our investigators were very very, very concerned about this. So our study was stopped early due to lack of equipoise from the investigators at the site. They, uh, as I said, didn't want to continue to randomise into the study and this was um, a universal decision discussed with the management committee, uh, which is a very large management committee with investigators as, you know, Alistair represents Ireland. We've got Yasina Ravi who represents Saudi Arabia. Um, we had people from the UK. We had investigators from Australia and New Zealand. It was discussed at a site level and we all came back and agreed that, that it was going to be very difficult to continue to randomise into the study. So because it was stopped early, it means that it was underpowered for our primary outcome measure, which was ventilator-free days. So when I say to you that there was no difference in ventilator-free days, I need you to take that um, on the understanding that we powered it for 340 patients and we only randomised 115. So there was no difference in our primary outcome. There was no difference in mortality. Very importantly, I think there was absolutely no difference in the rate of barotrauma and uh, that, that was either for the first seven days or throughout the study. Uh, there was an increase in the rate of new cardiac arrhythmias, but this was mostly atrial fibrillation. There was no, uh, when we talk about cardiac arrhythmias, there was no increase in, uh, there was no cardiac arrest, there was no ventricular tachycardia or, or VF. So, I think that it's important to say that the cardiac arrhythmias were not the sort that were going to kill our patients. And we certainly had a reduction in the use of rescue therapies. Importantly, there was um, a significant reduction in the use of ECMO, uh, but also in the use of prone and nitric oxide. So uh, while there was no difference in our primary outcome, I guess there's some important things to consider there. If you're a centre that doesn't have uh, expensive rescue therapies like nitric oxide and ECMO available. This is something that may be used as a rescue therapy and may be helpful. Um, but you do need to understand that there is a risk of increasing your cardiac arrhythmias, particularly atrial fibrillation, and that perhaps you need to watch for that. So um, this obviously was a secondary outcome and it wasn't powered for those findings, but also what you're saying is that these are very interesting findings and would you base a new study to determine uh, the validity of that uh, finding or um, are you basing it just on your current findings? 
So, so I might take a step back before I answer that. So, um, there are a lot of lessons we got from this study. And I suppose some of the things to consider is, well, first of all, ventilation trials are difficult. And uh, if you look at the photo of our management committee before the study and after the study, it has taken its toll. And essentially, we were trying to deliver a complex intervention in many ICUs in many different countries. And that was difficult. So recruitment into this study was difficult. And I think the reasons can be, see can be seen in the fidelity of the recruitment maneuver we delivered. So the vast majority of these recruitment maneuvers were delivered by ICU consultants at the bedside. It would take 30 to 45 minutes to deliver this intervention for day one to five and um, while the patient didn't meet any of the weaning criteria. So that is a considerable time commitment for, um, for busy clinicians on uh, working on the clinical floor. So um, it was difficult to recruit patients into this study, and we believe that's probably primarily due to the difficulty to deliver the intervention. Now, saying that, the guys and girls who did this did it very well. So the patients who um, were randomized to receive the intervention got it. They got um, um, high pressures. The majority of patients, like 90%, got 20, 30, or 40 centimeters of water at each intervention. And 90% of patients got um, two, three, or four recruitment maneuvers. So we delivered the intervention, but it was difficult to deliver. And I think as our trial currently stands, um, it might not be feasible to do a phase three part to the endpoints you asked Carol about. So that's a very long and complicated way of saying, um, I don't think so at the moment. That's based on the, the um, secondary outcomes in our study. Got you. And what other interpretations do you have from your study, um, Alistair? And then I'll turn it over to Carol to answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, well, so, again, with the caveat, as Carol said, that this was an underpowered study. Um, and you have to frame it in the light of the art study just came. It knocked the legs from under us because clinicians at the bedside were concerned that recruitment maneuvers were actually dangerous and may actually be causing cardiac arrest, barotrauma, trauma, and death in patients. So when the ARC results were published, we have just swept over um, our re recruiting sites. And actually, in our clinical center, we, so we're an ECMO referral center, and we would have used this maneuver very commonly in patients with severe hypoxemia who were referred for consideration of ECMO. That stopped overnight because of concerns about maximum recruitment and maneuvers. Now, so what our study showed with the caveats that will be discussed is it wasn't harmful. There was no signals towards harm on ventilator-free days, mortality, ICU length of stay. If anything, the trends were to favor um, benefit rather than harm, but again, just trends in an underpowered study. Uh, our safety endpoints showed, yes, some increased cardiac arrhythmias, but not um, malignant arrhythmias that were difficult to um, control. There was no increase in borrowed trauma. It was actually less than in the control group. And that we had some subgroup analysis as well 
that showed that um, maybe one subgroup of patients, and um, so the patients who had improvements in static compliance in the far after might have done better. So that was one thing we took out of this is maybe there's subgroups that would have done better with this intervention. Got you. And Carol, what other uh, interpretations did you have from your findings? Yeah, I think uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are important about the lack of recruitment into the study. So we had 88 patients who were not randomised due to clinician preference. And I think when people read that, they would think that that was because uh, the clinicians were not willing to randomise into this maximum maximal recruitment uh, open lung ventilation strategy. But I think that in fairness, across Australia and New Zealand, our clinicians were equally less happy to randomise into the ARSNET peak titration strategy. So one of the problems that we had was when we were trying to set our control group and we wanted a, a real difference in the way we were titrating our PEEP and we chose to use the, uh, the PEEP arm of the ARSNET table, that that is not something that's commonly used across Australia and New Zealand and our sites were less happy to use that compared to other ways of titrating PEEP. Um, so I think that one of the limitations of our study is simply that it was very difficult to find an intervention strategy and a control group strategy that our intensivists were happy to ventilate their patients with and that they were happy to stick with. We had, um, as you would imagine, a very strict weaning criteria which we used for our primary outcome. Um, again, you know, we had a, a lot of pushback. I think our clinicians used it very well but they weren't happy using it and um, sometimes I think they may have decided not to randomise patients into the trial because they weren't happy being told how to wean their patients uh, via, via a certain strategy. Uh, and I certainly think that, uh, as Alistair alluded to, that the time at the bedside for the intensive care consultant to deliver the intervention was a real barrier for this study. So maybe, Dominic, I, I might maybe sum it all up and say two or three sentences, which would be, our studies, although on the part, suggested there was no benefit for the routine use of maximum recruitment maneuvers in patients with severe or moderate ARDS. And we did not detect signals for this uh, harm detected in other trials. And um, at this time, we wouldn't recommend the routine use of um, alveolar recruitment maneuvers. And I, I think, sorry, maximal alveolar recruitment maneuvers. Um, but with the caveat that uh, this was a phase two study to see if a phase three study, phase three study, sorry, let me start that again. This was a phase two study to determine the feasibility of a phase three study of this intervention. And we clearly determined that that's not feasible. So future studies looking at this would need a different either design and or intervention to make it feasible. So let's jump into that um, uh, discussion. So what, uh, how would you change the design of the study, Alistair, um, to address the clinical question? So, so interestingly, this has um, encouraged people who are strong proponents of open lung approach that there is there is still life in the horse yet. So there is um, there these two studies have because of their methodological limitations and their difficulty with recruitment have not definitively answered whether an open lung approach is better than standard care, and I'll put in brackets, ARDS net care. I think there's a number of things we'd have to do in a future study. 
Um, I might talk about the intervention, and then maybe Carol, you can talk about the design. But yes. so the intervention, we would think, would have to be easy to be conducted at the bedside. Ideally, not not require consultant intensivists to uh, deliver the intervention. It should be personalizable to the patient of the different phases of ARDS they have, and it should have it should have pressures that are high enough and long enough to open up the lung, but not high enough or, or long enough to um, cause cardiovascular instability. It also needs to be done in a way that avoids biotrauma. There were concerns of the ART study that it may have actually been um, leading to actually increased oddity. And again, like all of these studies, we need um, strict weaning protocols that allow um, clear interpretation of uh, sec- uh, secondary endpoints or sorry, uh, intermediate endpoints like ventilator um, free days. Over. So, Carol, what, what do you think are the, the main design things we should do next time? So, I think that there's quite a few issues around using a really large pragmatic trial to run a ventilation study where you're wanting to, people to follow a very strict uh, protocol for mechanical ventilation, uh, peak titration and weaning. So I think the first thing that I would prefer to do is use um, a less number of centres and perhaps use some precision medicine where we can um, try and predict which patients are going to be responders versus non-responders. And I think that, you know, some sort of predictive enrichment around, um, you know, driving pressure changes very early in the intervention or compliance changes very early in the intervention might be the way to go. And I also think that using um, a novel trial design, some sort of adaptive trial design where you um, tend to recruit to the intervention arm that's showing benefit early rather than necessarily, um, you know, using a, a, a traditional randomization design where, you know, it's potential potentially um, going to cause more harm in a group of patients. So I think there's a few things to consider. Um, I'm not a statistician and, you know, I think that the numbers that we were looking for in our region um, are very difficult. We would definitely need to design a trial that was smaller and had some more precision around the endpoint. Because I think the problem is if you're a believer in open lung strategy or you're a believer in strict ARSNET, you could interpret our results and say, I told you so, both equally. And I think we need a lot more clarity in mechanical ventilation because um, I think it's the most, it's the thing intensivists feel they own most and everyone feels they do it better than everyone else. And we need to have more studies looking at that variation and seeing what are the key elements in mechanical ventilation that actually improve outcomes. And I think I'd like to add to that, uh, there's two things that I think that we planned at the outset which are really beneficial for the FILAP study. The first one is that um, led by Shailesh Bahari, who's um, one of our intensivists who sits in Adelaide in Australia, he led um, a study of biomarkers and we were able to include um, a hyperinflammatory model into our uh, results section, which I think has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. We are planning, um, we've been in contact with Carolyn Kelsey to design a, a more intricate analysis of our hyperinflammatory model using some of her modelling. And I think that that will really add to the body of knowledge around um, in, inflammation and which which patients are potentially responders to some sort of strategy that looks like this. And secondly, I think that our data will 
uh, we have a planned individual patient data meta-analysis with uh, Bob Kazmerich from the OLA trial with uh, Marcelo Amato and, and Alexandra Biazzi and his group from the ART trial and with our results. So I think that it's really beneficial that we're going to pull the results from three trials of an open lung maximal recruitment strategy and, and try and determine whether there's a group of patients that do better than others. And I, I, we definitely look forward to all the publication of uh, those papers and hopefully gain a whole lot more insight into ARDS. Alistair brought up a really interesting issue about the fact that uh, uh, the study findings, uh, it could make clinicians who are in each group uh, feel that they've got vindication. And there was an earlier paper in the Blue Journal about how physicians disagree about the actual ARDS diagnosis. And one of the findings that they had was that there's considerable heterogeneity in clinician practice. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about, I mean, we always propose, you know, having one optimal ventilation strategy, but one fact that doesn't get uh, added is the fact that clinicians uh, um, differ so much in terms of personality and the way they practice medicine. So maybe you could uh, share your insights on that or your thoughts. Yes, so, so, since the initial ARSNET study of 6 mils per kilo versus 12 mils per kilo, these discussions have really been intense in mechanical ventilation. Chuck Mason's work looking at practice misalignments have fed into that so that there were um, diverging signals within the ARSNET groups. So there were some patients from 6 mils per kilo that actually did worse, but there were actually patients who um, were maybe harmed with the 6 mils per kilo approach versus the 12 mils per kilo. And what that has meant to clinicians is um, they, and I think a lot of this is actually quite right, is it's not a one-size-fits-all that my patient is different. And even if you look at ours and pretend we don't have any previous lung pathology before, such so as COPD that might change the mechanics of the lung, it's a disease that changes in different times. And our practice is changing. People are on high, high flow nasal prongs for longer, getting intubated later. So they might actually be at different phases of the ARDS process when they're randomized into trials. So I think it is important to acknowledge that um, clinicians are not ignoring the studies and not ignoring the literature. They're applying them and the elements of them which they think are most appropriate. Um, there are other studies actually we're involved in that hope, um, as part of the European and NHMRC-funded trial looking at community-acquired pneumonia, is to try and understand some of this heterogeneity of uh, clinician and um, practice in mechanical ventilation. And we would hope in that study to identify the, the key attributes, whether it's um, pressure, tidal volume, peak that might be associated with improved outcomes to try and actually develop mechanical ventilation strategies that are more personalized to the patient. But um, th this is not something we're going to sort soon. I think it's going to be more about a strategy than actually a very prescriptive um, uh, protocol for a patient with ARDS or another lung pathology. But yeah, I certainly I hope that when we pull yeah, the ahead, results uh, of our yeah, I, I really hope that when we pull the results of our individual patient data meta analysis that we can also look at some of the patient groups that might benefit, not just 
clinician preference, but also perhaps there are patient groups that we should be targeting instead of others. Yeah. yeah. And then, so you mentioned the influence of high flow, and uh, high flow has definitely uh, increased uh, in the number of patients that we've seen in the United States. What effect do you think that's having that? Uh, what effect do you think high flow is having on ARDS diagnosis and management um, overall? So um, I'm actually um, part of the International Guideline Committee looking at the use of high-flow oxygen therapy in patients with acute respiratory failure. And I think that there is some indication that the use of high-flow early may reduce um, acute respiratory failure, which would be fantastic. It means that we may not be having the patient developing moderate to severe ARDS and requiring intubation. So I think that it's important to uh, remember that there's ongoing trials, that the data is still being synthesised, um, but I think that that's probably one of the most exciting areas of um, intensive care medicine with regards to acute respiratory failure that's developed in the last decade. Well, and just to build on that, Carol, I think there's, and I don't know if this is the case or not, but I would have a suspicion that there are some patients who would probably have the PF ratios, would probably have the chest X-ray findings, but they're sitting in the corner of an ICU on high flow nasal prongs and are maybe not being recognised as an ARDS patient or as acutely unwell because they're not intubated. And maybe some of them are actually slipping under the radar. So it would be really interesting to see what impact that has. And actually, that other study we're talking about, the REMAP CAP study, is actually going to enrol patients on high flow nasal prongs and just to look at what their trajectory is. So it'll be, it'll be definitely. I think that's been the biggest change in hypoxic respiratory failure over the last five years. So it'll be really interesting to see what impact it has on outcomes and mortalities. I definitely agree. So, Carol, um, if you had to summarise, what do you think um, are the major um, advances of your study in terms of our understanding of ARDS, and how do you think your findings are going to influence our clinical practice? So. I think that you have to be very cautious when you interpret our findings mm -hmm. because they're underpowered. Um, we stopped recruitment. Uh, we weren't powered for our primary outcome or for mortality, um, and we're probably not powered for our secondary outcome. So I think that we've very clearly said that, you know, we think that with the patients that were enrolled, we didn't see a signal for harm in terms of barotrauma. We certainly didn't see the dangerous cardiac arrhythmias that were described in the ART study, but we only recruited 115 patients. So again, I think you need to take that with a grain of salt. And we did see less use of um, other hypoxemic rescue therapies, um, including ECMO. And I think that, you know, I, perhaps one of the most beneficial things to take from this is that there may be patients who are failing, and if you don't, if you're not an ECMO referral centre or if you don't have availability of inhaled nitric oxide, that potentially this sort of recruitment manoeuvre may help as a rescue therapy rather than as a, a standard ventilation therapy. Um, but again, you know, we don't really have the data to support whether there should be anything that changes based on, on our intervention and, and our findings. What I would say is that we have some lovely data to add to the body of knowledge that we're really glad that we were able to include some biomarkers and that this will result in some studies around a hyperinflammatory model um, and that I think people should really be looking out for the planned individual patient data meta-analysis. Mm. So, so I might just add a, a sentence to that, Carol. So 
in our units or in the units we work with, if you are a believer of this approach, you're, you continue to use it. If you're not, you continue to use what you did before. And talking outside the four corners of our trial, what we have seen is that people are um, they're comfortable again to use this as a rescue therapy for um, severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, where the ARC trial has stopped that. And again, that's outside our study, but that'll be an interesting area to look at. Great. And um, I want so to say, yes, we, can, go ahead, Carol. Can I add one thing? Yeah, I just want to say a big thank you to our 35 sites mm -hmm. across five countries who, um, you know, diligently randomised and followed this complex intervention, spent a lot of time being trained and, uh, you know, recruiting patients into the study whenever they could. And, you know, this was funded across uh, four, three countries, Australia, New Zealand and Ireland, all put in uh, national funding applications and were successful. And it was endorsed across our trials groups in those countries. And it was actually also put on the portfolio in the UK for research. So I feel like, um, you know, there's a lot of criticism of maximal recruitment manoeuvres and, and an open lung strategy. But this is something that was occurring across many countries, was being used uh, in many, many centres, was endorsed by trials groups around the world and was accepted onto national funding portfolios. So I think that it's, uh, you know, just a big shout out to our sites to say thank you for their time and their effort. Uh, and we really do hope that the pooled results are incredibly helpful to define when we should be using it. I, I completely echo what Carol said about the huge international collaboration this was. In particular, I think we have to acknowledge um, as you said, David Tuxen and Jamie Cooper, who have really pushed this study from the start. Um, um, we have a huge number of collaborators, in particular, Yassine in Saudi Arabia, um, Kathy Bricknell in the Irish group, uh, Shane McGuinness and Rachel from New Zealand, and Andy Burson and Shelesh from um, Adelaide, who just have contributed so much to the study, and we wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. Thank you very much. You'll take care. My <laughs> pleasure. Thanks, Dominique. Lovely chatting. Ciao, ciao. Bye. A big thank you to Drs. Hodgson and Nicol, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.